Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago Away from Vienna Today is the 18th of July, 2014 And over this period in history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. Louis de Robian left Paris for St. Petersburg on the morning of the 6th of July, so he would arrive in the Russian capital with ample time to prepare for the important state visit of his country's president to the Russian Tsar on the 20th of July. His journey, recounted in Christopher Clarke's book, the Sleepwalkers, How Europe Went to War in 1914, makes for highly entertaining reading. When reaching the borders of East Prussia, de Robien, much to his irritation, had to switch carriages to compensate for the change in gauge in the Russian railway system. Such an apparent design flaw was deliberate, and meant to ensure against the fast advance of a foreign enemy into Russian territory. Yet for de Robien, it was a serious nuisance, and it signalled the end of the leisurely portion of his trip. Switching trains and travelling across the Russo-German border in the process, Robian was greeted by a horde of bearded persons, who wore boots and white aprons, and took charge of his baggage so fast he was unable to follow. His passport was checked, a process which irked Robian since, in that era of liberty, one travelled everywhere in Europe except for Russia without carrying a passport. Robien was ushered then into a candlelit room and forced to wait for the train to arrive that would take him to the Russian capital. Any officers he tried to speak with spoke only a few words of German, and he no doubt hoped that the capital would provide a better experience as his train finally arrived. However, upon arriving, Robien recalled that the Russian capital completed our disappointment about the whole journey, and he felt as if he were in a remotely foreign place. We felt, he would later recall, as if we were in China. St. Petersburg was full of horrible little carriages, long, 
poorly maintained roads and bearded, exotic-looking coachmen. Booking at the Hotel France, whose very name would suggest a sense of familiarity, Robien was aghast at how ugly and comfortless the atmosphere was in his large room, that it was notably different from what we were used to in Europe. He moved to the Hotel de Europe, where he expected better treatment and to be able to peruse the nearby shopfront, which hugged the river. But his hotel was not especially European, despite its name, and Robien recalled that the shopping opportunities were not much better than a French provincial town. Scarcely any passers-by could understand the Frenchman, despite the fact that he had been told all Russians spoke a degree of French, the better French being spoken by the upper classes, of course. Wining and dining was little better for the out-of-place foreign agent, who must have stuck out like a sore thumb in the Russian capital. The food was, Robien upheld, detestable, while Russian vodka, which Robien cringed to see drunk in a single gulp, was unworthy of a civilised palate, educated to the slow enjoyment of Cognacs, our Armagnacs, our Marks and our Kirch. Perhaps finished adjusting to his new surroundings, Robien pursued the main reason he'd been sent to the city. He sought out the French embassy and found in it a splendid former palace, which was more to Robien's taste, while the staff on site impressed Robien with their blue uniform and short breeches. On the ground floor overlooking the River Neva was the ambassador's office, draped with tapestries and paintings by a renowned French artist. A smaller room housed the telephone where the staff would ritually take tea every day, and next to this were the minor offices of councillors and diplomatic specialists. The strong room containing French transmission codes and secret documents were located at the back of the palace, where numerous secretaries busied themselves with correspondence. The pride of the embassy was the reception room on the first floor, where the ambassador to Russia resided. It was this man that Dorobian had come to see. An interesting character by the name of Maurice Paleologue. Maurice Paleologue was perhaps the most unusual of the diplomatic alumni France had representing itself during the July crisis. Incredibly extravagant, even for a high-level senior ambassador, Maurice was said to have brought his own chef from Paris with him to cook embassy dinners, which, when one considers Dorobian's complaining about the food, probably isn't all that surprising. Claiming to have descended from a former Byzantine emperor, which was how he explained the name, Maurice Paleologue, in fact, had a Greek political refugee for a father and a Belgian musician for a mother. However, this almost seems to have increased his zeal for French patriotism, and he remained determined to represent himself as the embodiment of French refinement and its culture superiority at all times. Maurice was also something of a dramatist, and he had the habit of injecting his daily dispatches with a shot of literary extravagance, so as to almost balance his high standards elsewhere in life. It seemed as though his own work could be nothing more than splendidly adventurous, and not at all dull. De Robien was well versed in Maurice's style, as he noted about the French ambassador. Whenever he recounted an event or sought to retrace a conversation, he recreated them almost entirely in his own imagination, endowing them with more vividness than truth. He was, de Robien said, a romancer rather than a diplomat. His need to present himself as reigning supreme in the French embassy translated itself into an overblown sense of his own importance. 
seen in his snubbing of lesser state representatives so as to appear busier and more important than he really was. He would go out of the embassy by the back door, go for a walk, and come back an hour later after they waited patiently for him, to be greeted with the excuse, My dear fellow, I've had so much on today. During Maurice's stint as junior diplomat in Sofia, from 1907 to 1912, one of the few foreign postings he endured before his promotion to St. Petersburg, he managed to exaggerate the circumstances of the time to such a degree that a colleague reported his dispatches were full of wild talk of horizons, of clouds, and of menacing future storms. Following this, he acquired a reputation as something of an excitable rumour-blower. Even his British colleagues in Sofia claimed that he was inclined to spread sensational and alarmist rumours, a trafficker in tall tales. It's difficult to find any positive contemporary accounts or traits of the man. Indeed, his own colleagues back home in Paris were wary that he may not fill the Russians with confidence. If such a blustering, bloated boob like Maurice Paleologue could be chosen to represent France to its ally, then what did that say about what France really thought about its ally? What Maurice lacked in ability and positive references, he made up for in connections and convictions. The former of these involved being lucky enough to attend the same school, first as the former French president who left office in 1905, then as Raymond Poincaré, who put back on track his faltering career when he assumed the office of president. Dorobian noted that it was to their friendship that he owed his astonishing career but his convictions would have been more important to Poincaré in particular than whether or not the two had attended the same school, and this was a central factor in his appointment. For years, Maurice had languished in the Paris Centrale, condemned to read and sift through the dispatches of French officials for eternity. However, he moved up the ladder to take charge of secret files that concerned the Franco-Russian Entente, and his immersing within their contents made him an avid supporter of the Alliance. He gained valuable experience here as he served as liaison between the military and intelligence services, and in turn acquired access to documents detailing German military plans that had been apprehended in previous years. This made him an overbearing Germanophobe, obsessed with the threat Germany posed to France and the resulting need for Russian security. These characteristics endeared him to Poincaré, who in 1912 was the French Prime Minister. He promoted him to political director of the French diplomatic base in Paris, a move which stunned his fellow diplomatic colleagues. While in Paris, he played a key role in persuading Poincaré to commit France more firmly in the Balkans. He saw the Balkan Wars as the opportunity for France and Russia to improve their standing, and did not believe in the effects an Austro-Russian Entente would have in the theatre. Convinced of the machinations of Vienna and Berlin, while blind to those of St. Petersburg, Maurice was perfect for the position of ambassador to Russia, which he took in January 1914. When the Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Sazanov, learned of the appointment, he welcomed it. Although Maurice's idiosyncrasies were well known, it was also a fact that Maurice and Raymond were close friends, and had strikingly similar views on policy. Before he left to take the posting in Russia, Maurice informed a colleague that he would put an end to the policy of concessions to the central powers adopted by his predecessors, and he would fight for a future hardline policy without compromise or vacillation, adding, Enough of this. We must show Germany our strength. It surely did not bode well for a Franco-German, or indeed European stability, that some of the most critical decisions... 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Were to be in the hands of this man over the period of the July crisis. French President Raymond Poincaré had every reason to be uneasy. His political rival, Georges Clemenceau, had recently launched a tirade against French military unpreparedness that had caused a storm when its details were learned to be largely true. Shortage of artillery shells and a lack of large guns in comparison to Germany was made seemingly worse by further shortages of simple items like boots. French forts were upheld to be dilapidated and with insufficient wiring systems that put their communications in jeopardy. When the French Minister of War responded to the attacks, he had explained that rapid progress was being made on all fronts and that the artillery defects would be resolved by 1917. Clemenceau had attempted to call into question the three-year law, a critical military plan aimed at modernising and increasing the striking power of the French armed forces. The three-year law could be often a divisive political issue, since the question of whether reconciliation should be pursued with Germany often went hand-in-hand with those that did not support its contents. This explains Poincaré's preference to surround himself with so-called Germanophobes, since they are more likely to support any efforts of France to increase its military standing. Clemenceau's argument revolved around the issue that the report had revealed serious problems with the ruling government's competence, and that its president should thus remain behind to finalise and further justify its contents, rather than escaping to St. Petersburg. Clemenceau had appeared poised to not only withdraw parliamentary support for the bill, but also to force Poincaré to postpone the trip to Russia that he had been planning for months. Political concerns were another worry for Poincaré. 
the political turmoil caused by the Calot affair, in which the wife of a high-level French politician shot and killed a newspaper editor, was still being felt, and the trial was due to take place on the 20th of July, the day they would be arriving in St. Petersburg. Joseph Calot claimed he possessed papers which contained his correspondence with Germany, during which he had advocated a policy of détente in 1911-1912. Calot claimed that he also possessed evidence which proved that Poincaré had secretly worked against him behind the scenes, and he threatened to release his information to the press if Poincaré did not ensure the release of Calot's wife. Poincaré was accompanied on the trip by the new Prime Minister, René Viviani, whose complete ignorance of foreign affairs and recent appointment to the position only five weeks before suggested that the French president would have to carry the upcoming meeting with the Tsar relatively alone. However, Poincaré would have known, as he stepped off the train at Dunkirk and boarded the battleship France on the morning of Thursday the 16th of July, that it was always going to be up to him to carry the day. The Russians are, though apparently favourable towards the alliance between Russia and France, had neither made strong gestures in favour of or against it in public, and the Russian war cabinet situation, which usually contained a mixture of pro- and anti-German sentiments, were often used to balance the extremes of Russian policy. Poincaré had a lot to discuss when he arrived, but for the moment he spent the three full days of his journey on the deck of the battleship, conversing intensely with Viviani and trying to fill him in as best as he could about the Russian situation. Poincaré had in fact visited St. Petersburg in 1912, and was in many ways responsible for the hardening of French policy towards Germany in the months after the Agadir crisis in 1911 and the transformation of the Balkan situation thereafter which persuaded Poincaré of the need to incorporate the region in French strategic thinking. He was close to Izvolsky, who had been reinvented as Russian ambassador to France after the Bosnian crisis of 1908-09. Because Izvolsky was in Paris, Poincaré had easy access to him, and by consequence, to his views. Nonetheless, Poincaré was still shocked to learn of the level of Russian involvement in the Balkans, when the new Foreign Minister Sazanov provided him with a text of the terms of the 1912 Balkan League that was to effectively blow up into war that October. However, as we've seen, these revelations about the Balkans made Poincaré more, not less, determined to remain close to Russia and simultaneously bring the ideas about security and mutual defence from that region into the wider Franco-Russian Entente. Poincaré noted that though Russian involvement in the region did not take into account the rights of either the Ottomans or Austrians, any war that erupted in the region would occupy a vast portion of Vienna's forces, a fact which would only benefit the Russian ally and leave at a disadvantage the German enemy. These were the years of Poincaré's posting as Prime and Foreign Minister, which he held until 1913 when he became President. Having controlled French foreign affairs at perhaps the most turbulent time in recent French memory, and having inherited the legacy of events such as the 1905 Moroccan crisis, the 1908 Bosnian crisis, the 1911 Agadir crisis, and the 1912-1913 Balkan Wars, Poincaré would transfer his lessons learned in this chaotic environment to the French presidency, where he applied his now hardened views at a time when French national sentiment as a whole appeared to be stiffening. His brainchildren had been the three-year law, designed to reduce the military advantages of Germany over France and recoup the gap in artillery that Clemenceau had alluded to. But Poincaré also held as the cornerstone of his policy the continuing closeness of Russia, 
and the incorporation into the Franco-Russian Entente of Britain. Poincaré had thus made it his mission to settle any differences that the far-flung empires of Britain and Russia possessed, particularly at the moment with respect to Persia. Poincaré planned to build upon what had already been established in St. Petersburg in 1912, during his visits to the country as foreign minister. Now, sitting on the deck of the battleship France, away from the political noise of Paris, Poincaré began to finally fill Viviani in on the history, nature and crucial need of the Russian alliance, no doubt beginning all the way back in 1894, when it was first finalised as a military agreement. Poincaré knew that for Viviani to be effective at all, he would have to be informed. For Viviani, who was more concerned about the snippets of information filtering in from Paris about the Calot affair, Russia seemed like a world away. Poincaré's summaries of the tutorials, as he called them, which he gave to Viviani, give us a good idea of what the French president had planned for the summit. Details on the alliance, relations with Germany, and on Russia's approach to England regarding a naval convention were on the president's agenda as he talked with his prime minister on the deck. But he also wanted to develop on the subjects raised in St. Petersburg in 1912. These included the reinforcement of strategic railways and the importance of massive strikes from the Polish salient into Germany. Germany was to be the principal target of the alliance, as Balkan entanglements were predicted to slow her Habsburg ally down. Poincaré declared that, I have never had any problems with Germany, because I have always treated her with great firmness. A statement which illustrates his core policy. France could not follow any strategy other than aggressive defence. To reinforce this idea, England and Russia would be incorporated into an even stronger triple entente while France would commit to supporting Russia in the Balkans. These were the primary concerns of Poincaré as his ship moved up the Baltic. The days at sea were profoundly relaxing in comparison to the rocky French political scene back in Paris, and one could imagine him in his relaxed chats with his Prime Minister, breathing in the Baltic air, no doubt feeling relieved to be away from Paris for a time. Little did he know, at this stage, that such absence from the French political central nervous system was exactly what Habsburg planners in Vienna were counting on. The President's good mood was buoyed by the warm welcome his ship received as it pulled into Kronstadt Harbour on the morning of Monday the 20th of July. As Russian ships sounded their salute, Poincaré noted that, I leave the France with the emotion that always overcomes me when, to the noise of cannon fire, I leave one of our warships. Across the water, standing at the bridge of the ship Alexander alongside the Tsar, having been prepped earlier and filled with expectation by the diplomat Louis de Robienne, stood the French ambassador to Russia, Maurice Paleologue. Maintaining his flair for the dramatic, Maurice described the scene as the French president landed. It was a magnificent spectacle. In a quivering, silvery light, the France slowly surged forward over the turquoise and emerald waves leaving a long white furrow behind her. Then she stopped majestically. The mighty warship, which has brought the head of the French state, is well worthy of her name. She was indeed France, coming to Russia. I felt my heart beating. Poincaré's summit was the result of months of his own hard work, and was meant to form the centrepiece in a grand project of friendship and cooperation between France and Russia. However, unbeknownst to Poincaré, his summit would soon form another chapter of the July Crisis, as statesmen many miles away in Vienna 
plotted how to get their revenge on their neighbour for an event that had occurred three weeks before. Though Poincaré was in the dark about Habsburg planning, the Habsburgs themselves were in the dark as to the fact that their plot had already been compromised, and that the efforts to prevent the information leakage had failed. By the time of Saturday the 18th of July, the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Sazanov was already aware of the Austro-Hungarian plan to deliver the ultimatum, and soon rumour would spread to the ears of the French president, where the plans of the Habsburg statesmen would explode in their faces, just as they had initially feared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.